You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Well, good morning. Caitlin does such a good job. We appreciate that. Uh, and I've been looking around. I think I'm not in the minority, but we're getting close to a 50-50 on shorts. How many of you guys have shorts on today? You know, there's a... There's a movement at Westwind, and I, I guess I'm a latent follower, uh, so we'll have to talk about that as elders. Mr. Dean, can you imagine preaching in shorts? I got vetoed last week. I'm getting vetoed again. All right, we'll stick with the trousers, all right? Book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. If uh, uh, you're not aware, uh, we're going to have a nine-week series on Malachi, uh, we titled the series, Keep Yourselves in the Love of God. Where do we get that from? Jude 1, verse 20. It's a directive. It's an imperative. Why? Because the love of God is primary. We lose first love relationship with God. We've lost everything. Remember, the first great commandment, Old New Testament, it's the same. Love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. What a wonderful way to live life, all in loving God. Last week, we explored uh, Exodus 19. Why did we go back to go forward? The book of Malachi is written around 430 BC. They're written to a Jewish audience. They get it. We don't. We're Westerners. We're way away from what happened in covenant love relationship with God in Israel. So we started in Exodus 19. If you missed that talk, please go there. Why? You'll understand one thing. Old New Testament is the same. We are redeemed for a covenant love relationship. Redemption equals love. God redeems us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? To fulfill the first great commandment. And so my topic this morning is a little bit more difficult, renewing covenant love. That's what's going on in 430 B.C., about a 1,000 years later from the Exodus. This is tough stuff. Last book of the Old Testament, how sad. It closes with love fading, being compromised, half-hearted love. It's a difficult book. And so today... Renewing covenant love. And why is it a bit more daunting? We live in a culture, and please hear me, folks. In a few weeks, we're going to address covenant love relationship in marriage. But we live in a culture today that has devalued marriage and no longer holds sacred to covenant love relationships. It's everywhere. My generation has ruined you guys. We have sinned against our youth. We have individuals, iconic, they're huge names in our culture, Liz Taylor, Larry King, married and divorced seven times each. I'm not trying to pick on anyone, folks, but that's becoming more normal than not. And then flip it around, what does the media do with marriage and covenant love relationships? Here's what the media does. It exploits it. And so a few years ago, Britney Spears, pop icon. She just wanted to have some fun. So with her childhood sweetheart, here's what she did. Hey, why do you say we just go to a chapel and get married? They did. You know how long the marriage lasted? Two days, seven hours. And then Brittany just says, ah, the joke went too far. 
That's how we devalue marriage and covenant love relationships. So when we open the Bible and we talk about something so important, so beautiful, it's hard for us to comprehend why our culture has diminished it. And now the sad statistics, and we'll cover this in a few weeks, Malachi 2 addresses fidelity, addresses covenant love marriage relationships. Uh, the average marriage in America today lasts eight years. That should break our hearts. Now, I'm not talking about marriage. We'll get to that in Malachi 2. But uh, what I am talking about is covenant love relationship with God. Why do I start with marriage? Because there's tension. In the average community in America, marriages are just unraveling or people are just living together. It's just not the way God intended do you realize the Bible uses marriage as the most intimate picture of our love relationship with God? It does. Let me show it to you, Old and New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 2, look what God says. Jeremiah's written about 600 B.C., a little bit before Malachi. This is when Babylon's coming because of sin. Israel's going to be disciplined. Here's what Jeremiah wrote, the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. Look at this next phrase. I remember the loyalty of your youth, Israel. Your love as what? Your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness. We're going back to wilderness wanderings for 40 years in a land not sown. To follow the Lord with all their heart for a season in the wilderness was tough. Why? The circumstances were dire. This is Death Valley, if you will. It's arid, it's dry, it's rocky. There's not a lot going on except manna from heaven, water from a rock, God being your provider, Jehovah Jireh. Now, friends, if you think Israel struggled, let me share with you the church. Revelation, um, we go to... Uh, the last book of the New Testament, what is the picture we get there? Follow along with me. The Apostle John wrote this, let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And notice this next phrase, it's beautiful. And his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. The wife, the bride, the church, you and I are preparing ourselves today to meet the bridegroom. There was a wedding coming someday. That's how intimate God pictures our love, redemptive relationship with him. And Ephesians 5 is the ultimate chapter. I can't dive into that deeply, but you know what Paul says? There is a mystery in a husband and wife relationship. You know what that mystery is? Our marriages speak to the marriage we have, the church, the bride, with the bridegroom. And so God values covenant love relationship, not only vertically, but horizontally, and it testifies to his glory. So last week, please hear me, we are redeemed for covenant love. That's the same thing that takes place in the New Testament. So what's going on in Malachi? One thing, if you want one word to hang your hat on, it's a devaluing just like our culture today, of covenant love relationship with God. And folks, that's ironic. Why? Because all God had done for them, redeemed them from slavery, gave them a land, the promised land, a land filled of milk and honey, gave them his word, revelation, was with him in present, pillar of fire, cloud by day. He was with them. The tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, God blessed them beyond measure. 
and now their hearts are waning, growing cold, half-hearted. They devalued covenant love. And so I hope you have your Bibles open, Malachi chapter 1. There's four chapters, but it's deep. This is a rich, rich book, and there's so many parallels, folks. Don't think Old Covenant, New New Covenant. Think Bible. Think the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Malachi 1-2, we looked at this a little bit last week. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you asked, how have you loved us? That's harsh words from a people who have been redeemed, from a people who have been blessed. How have you loved us? Man, just, just imagine the heart of God breaking here. Now, again, folks, we might think, oh, the church is uh, different. Let me show you something. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. If you're familiar at the church of Ephesus, remember we went through the book of Acts. We discovered that the church was birthed in Ephesus on the second missionary journey. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. Great things were happening. The kingdom of God was coming. God was at work. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24 says, I write to you who have an undying love for Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful statement. One generation, look what happens. Here's what Jesus says with eyes of fire. He peers into the church and he says this, but I have this against you, Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That should break the church's heart. It should break our hearts. So let me ask the question this morning. If Jesus came to West Wind Church and he does have eyes of fire, in Revelation 1 he has that wool-like hair. He is a wise, all-seeing, omnipresent, omniscient. He can see our hearts. What would he see this morning? Corporately as a church, would he see a first love relationship like Ephesus had at the end of chapter 6? And then would you see a forsaken, abandoned relationship? What would he see? And then individually, what would he see? Would you see a heart that's in love with God? First love relationship, passionate for him, where we'd see a half-hearted, uh, growing cold. And so the question it begs this morning is, what happened to Israel? Why in 430 B.C., knowing all of God did to redeem his people, why did their hearts grow cold? And friends, that's an important question to to ask and answer why context is king. We have to realize there was a lot going on in 430 BC. But I want to sum it up with one phrase. And if you're taking notes, here's what I believe happened. Israel had unmet expectations of God. Unmet expectations of God. Just like in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. You have expectations. And what happens sometimes? The marriage starts to erode because the expectations aren't met. And next thing you go from here to here to here, done. I think that's what happened to Israel. Now, you might say, okay, what were the unmet expectations? There's a lot, a lot going on here. They came back from Assyria, from Babylon, from Persian captivity. This is from 721 B.C., now 300 years later. They suffered greatly under pagan oppression and captivity. And they thought, wow, God sent us back to our land. Things are going to be better. Guess what? They're still a vassal state. Persia still got their thumb on them. They're being oppressed. Secondly, you know what they were thinking about? 
the glory years. You know what the glory years were? When Solomon built his temple, and it was beautiful, it was magnificent, and God dwelt in their midst, there was peace, there was prosperity, the land was flourishing, there were 12 tribes, not two, and now 12 were uh, uh, minimized to two, the 10 northern tribes disappeared under Assyrian captivity. And so their identity is being lost. They're thinking about the glory years. Yeah, Ezra, Nehemiah, they came back. They worked hard to rebuild a place of worship. They just weren't happy. They're thinking about the glory years. As a pastor for uh, a few seasons, I've heard that time and again. Boy, I just remember the glory days. And sometimes we have these expectations of God and they're not realized and we just get frustrated, we get demoralized. That's part of Israel's dilemma. Be careful, friends, about the glory years. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is here, he is present, he's in our midst. He wants to meet us. He wants us to worship him. The other thing I think that's going on with, with Israel, remember the promise, you're gonna go into a land filled with two things, milk and honey. It didn't seem like milk and honey right now, you guys. They were barely a people group, still being oppressed by Persia. The worship in the temple was half-hearted. They're just kind of frustrated with God, and we're going to see with each other. When our vertical love relationship is impacted, it always impacts our horizontal relationship, always. And that's what we're going to see as the book of Malachi unfolds. And so it begs the question for each and every one of us. Do we have expectations of God that lead to disappointment with God? Do we try to relive the glory years of yesterday? And because we're not experiencing those, we get a bit frustrated. I've done a lot of mission work over the years, and one of the tensions of mission work is, oh, this mission trip wasn't as, as, as powerful as the previous one. Who says so? How do you know how God has worked in his, a person's heart? How do you know that a seed was planted that'll get watered and bring fruit in 10 years? A lot of times mission work takes decades for the seed to get planted in water and for a people group to come to faith in Christ. We gotta hold our expectations of God loosely. He's sovereign, he sits on the throne. And so the question this morning is, what is God's remedy when our first love relationship is compromised? And that's what we're gonna talk about. I want you to hear one word this morning, and it's in Genesis, and it goes all the way through Revelation. Friends, if you want one word, this is a beautiful word that God gives us. Remember. Remember. You know why we need to remember? Because we have amnesia. We have such short-term memories. We forget what God has done and forget about standing in awe of him. Remember, Israel. I said last week, and please hear me, the most often repeated act of God in the Bible, other than Calvary, because Old Testament points back and the New Testament fulfills, is the exodus of Israel from Egypt. You're going to see that this morning. Remember what I did. Don't forget and keep standing in awe of God. You know what happens to Ephesus? Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. We won't put it up, but the first thing God says to Ephesus Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Go back to where the slippery slope began 
And boy, renew your love through repentance. And so three things we want you to remember from Malachi. Really, the first five verses this morning. Number one, remember God's faithful love. And friends, this is beautiful. Where do I get that from? Look again at verse two. I've loved you, says the Lord. The Hebrew word here is ahab, and it means faithfulness primarily. And that Hebrew word is used primarily in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, God's love doesn't fluctuate, folks. It doesn't vacillate. He's not a fickle God. He doesn't wake up one day and say, no, you know, Keith's a jerk, and I'm just not going to love him. Nope. Keith's a jerk, that's for sure. But he still loves me. And by the way, all of us are kind of like Keith. And he loves you. Amen? Amen? All right. I'm happy for that. Super happy. Now, don't miss this, because this is a super cool application point about God's faithfulness. Israel so bought into the idea of God's faithfulness, they came up with a biblical worldview of looking back to looking forward. Remember. They always look back. God called them to look back so they could look forward. Why? If he's the same today, yesterday, and forever, yesterday and forever, if I can look back and say he was faithful here, he'll be faithful there. That is cool. Let me show you a passage. Remember, Ahab is in Deuteronomy uh, most frequently. Let me show you a beautiful passage. Deuteronomy 7. The Lord was devoted to you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all people's, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept an oath. He swore to your father's faithfulness, covenant keeper. He brought you out, of a, out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery. We're going back to Egypt. From the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who does what? Keeps his gracious covenant. Loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. Aren't you glad for that? He's the covenant initiator, Exodus 19. He's the covenant keeper. Folks, Paul said this to Timothy. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? He cannot deny himself. Aren't you glad for that? We worship, we serve a faithful God. His love for us is demonstrated. Now, I want to give you a picture, one of my favorite ones, of looking back to looking forward. Picture yourself, and this is for teenagers. Sometimes I say, okay, how can I talk to the teens? Well, I'm talking to you. You guys can just take a break if you want, check your you know, texts, whatever. Um, for you, David, when he was a shepherd, the armies of Israel were paralyzed by a giant named Philistine. How old do you think David was, the shepherd boy? Who's 15 in this group? Any 15-year-olds? Who's 14? All right. He's your age, all right? So here's what happens. You girls, you leave the sheep, right? And you come, and you, you're just giving food from dad to your brothers, and you see the armies of Israel paralyzed. And David's like, gosh, you know, what's going on here? Where's this fear coming from? And then he has this God idea. Let's see if this shepherd boy, girl, could take on this Philistine giant, Goliath. Here's what David says. It's remarkable. David said, he's talking to Saul, he's talking to the army, he's talking to his brothers. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine giant. What did David do? 
He says, I remember when I was shepherding. I remember when I was caring for my flock and sheep, a lion, that's a true predator in Israel, a bear, another predator. He says, guess what? I'm pretty good with the sling. Took out the bear, the lion. Now the Lord did it. He says that, so don't think too pridefully. He didn't. And he takes that example from yesterday and yesteryear and he applies it to his immediate context. If God was faithful here when the bear, when the lion attacked, he's going to be faithful with this Philistine uncircumcised giant. So what does David do? Takes seven stones. There's a lot behind the number seven. The giant falls. Aren't you happy for that? So here's the cool thing, guys. Whatever we're facing in life, and Israel was facing a lot, they were demoralized. They went from 12 tribes to 10. Persia still had the thumb on them. They, didn't, they weren't happy with the new temple. They were just like discouraged. And God's calling them back. Remember my faithful love. The application for you and me is just absolutely clear, guys. Whatever we're dealing with today or tomorrow or next week, next year, guess what? He's faithful yesterday. He'll be faithful in the future. Trust him. Lean into him. And what a beautiful gift that is. In John 15, I'll just summarize this regarding his faithfulness to tie it into communion this morning. No greater love than one laid down his life for his friends, right? Jesus was faithful to redeem us. And then what does Jesus do at communion? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we celebrate communion, here's what we celebrate. We celebrate unconditional love. We celebrate sacrificial love. We're able to look back 2,000 years ago and say, God, thank you. You were all in there. You are all in here. I trust your unconditional love. I trust your sacrificial love. Find me faithful to your faithfulness. Remembrance number two, remember God's choosing love. And friends, this is just fun. Again, what's, what's really neat sometimes is, and this is a brand new discovery. I've never preached through Malachi, so I'm learning with you. But Ahab not only means faithful love, it also means a choosing love. It absolutely means that. That's the Hebrew connotation, and there's a bunch of scriptures that back that up. And so look at Malachi 1, 2 through 3, because this sometimes causes people to stumble. They don't get what's going on here because it's such strong language. You'll know by the end of this morning's talk what's going on. Look what happens. So God says, wasn't Esau's, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, and this is the phrase where a lot of people stumble, I have loved Jacob, but hated Esau. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God hate Esau as we basically define hatred? Was he, did he have an animosity towards him? A wrath? I want to take this guy out. Folks, it's just the opposite. There's something beautiful going on in biblical language, and that's one of the things we have to do. We have to study. We have to understand metaphors. We have to understand symbols. We have to understand language. There's some beautiful things going on here. And what I would like to suggest is this. In Malachi, God is using covenant love language. Remember if you wrote your vows or you shared your vows uh, in that beautiful wedding ceremony, there's special words that you share with each other. That's called covenant love language. 
Okay? That's what God's doing here. He's given covenant love language so people know how big his heart is for them. So I want to give you two truths about covenant love language. Don't miss this, please, because this is one of the stumbling blocks for people. Oh, wow. What kind of God is that? Love some, hates the other. Ugh, I don't want to worship that God. It's just the opposite, folks. He loves all people, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Jesus died for all, right? So he's all in for everybody. So what's going on here? Two things. Number one, God chose Jacob and therefore did not choose Esau. That's covenant love. In other words, he says, I choose one, and therefore, therefore by choosing one, I don't choose anyone else. That's simple math, right? You know, to be an elder, you've got to be a one-woman man, right? You don't want Keith, five women, right? That'd be weird, right? That'd be weird. Anybody say amen? Say, that would be weird, Keith. Somebody say, that is weird. Thank you. All right, so it is weird. So let me show you one of the coolest verses. This is so fun. Amos 3, sorry, it's just one of those mornings. Amos 3, 1 through 2. Love this picture. Because it's the same picture. It's just different language. Hear this word, O people of Israel, that the Lord has spoken concerning you, concerning the whole family that I brought up where? Land of Egypt, going back, remember. You alone have I singled out of all the families of the earth. That is why I'll call you to account for all your iniquities. You alone have I singled out. That's what's going on. Israel, I choose you by virtue of choosing you. I choose no one else. I'm all in with you. You think that's unique to the Old Testament? It's not. New Testament, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whenever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So... Are you thankful this morning that God chose you? Should Israel be thankful? You're going to see in the last point of today's talk, there's choice with a purpose. But let me ask you a question. Those of you here are married this morning. Spouses, let me ask you this question. Are you glad that you had the privilege to choose your spouse? How many would say, yes, I'm glad? Man, you guys better get your sticking hand up there. Dave Van Bruggen, wake up. Get it up. I know, Brooke, what's up with that? Huh? <laughs> of course we're glad. Now, for those of you who are looking forward to marriage, and I didn't marry until I was 30. I was looking forward, but I tell you one thing, I am super-duper glad I had a choice, right? Super-duper glad. So some of you know a little bit about Ellen and I, right? My choice was made years before Ellen even woke up to the possibility of a choice. So Ellen was in uh, uh, the youth ministry that I was working with. She was going to a Bible study I was leading. We did junior church together. I'm like, wow, this girl's growing up to be quite a godly girl, and I'm seven years older, and I better stop thinking like that. So then, you know, years went on. I'm in Bible school. She's down the road. We're in Philadelphia at the time. And I'm like, Lord, come on. I got her in my heart. Could she be the one? And uh, as much as I pursued her, guess what happened? It was like the magnets. You know how when you put magnets together, it shoots the other way? Bing, she bounced off. So, so here's what happened. And, and feel my pain, front row. So I would go out with some of these cool girls in Bible school, missionary kids, godly girls, pretty girls. And guess what? We'd be out for dinner. We'd be talking. And guess who I'd look across the table? Her name's Sue, but it was Ellen. I just thought about Ellen all the time. And so anyone I went out with, it was just like, yuck. So 1987, 
1987, I'm in Israel, and I literally pray this prayer. Lord, just let me get home. I'll do a summer internship. Ellen will be there, and she'll just, yes to the missile magic. It, it will happen. It will happen. So guess what? I'm home for an intern. I got a whole summer. Man, twice she said no. Twice, guys. You feel my pain? No? You, you have no mercy? I still feel the pain. I'm still in counseling. And so here's what I did. Ellen probably tell you a different side. I started hanging out with this other girl from the church. Guess what? Ellen's eyes got a little bit bigger. Finally came to her senses. Started dating two years later, married. That's my story. But I'll tell you this. In choosing Ellen, please hear me, because this is why I share that. I say no to every other girl, period. Nobody gets my attention, you guys. Zero. Nobody gets my attention. There's no rivals in my love relationship to Ellen. That's what God is saying here. And so it looks like to you sometimes maybe that, wow, Keith just kind of hates women. No, I like girls. I just love my wife so much, it looks like I am disinterested in everyone else, and that is true. Get it? And folks, that translates from vertical to horizontal. That's how our marriage covenant should be. No rivals, no spiritual adultery, all in. So for those of you who are looking forward to what I was at age 30, that day's coming, you get to choose. For those of you who have chosen, stay unrivaled, but ultimately first love with God. Now secondly, don't miss this. Truth number two, covenant love language. In comparison, God's love for Jacob, hear me, trumps any other love. In comparison, that's what we're doing here. You love so much, it looks like you hate. Now, you think again, oh, the Old Testament is just so weird. It's got all these symbols that I can't understand it. Let me jump you to the New Testament. I'll show you the same concept. You ready? Luke 14, Jesus is speaking. Now, great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife or children, brother or sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you see it, guys? Jesus doesn't want us to hate our parents, our siblings, or, you know. He, he wants us to love, right? First, first great commandment, love God. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. So what is he doing? He's using covenant love language that is inaugurated in the Old Testament to say your love for Christ is so great, it looks like you even hate your parents. I talk about my mom all the time, so you know how much I love mom. But think about this. Is my love for God so great through Christ that it almost looks like I'm dissing my mom. That's the great love he has for us that we should reciprocate. That's the beautiful picture. God chose us. In comparison, our love is all in. So how you doing, bride? And I'm talking corporately right now. We are the bride of Christ. And how you doing as individuals? Do you have a heart first love relationship? Are you all in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? That's the picture. Now, finally, we'll wrap it up. Remember God's purposeful love. Remember God's purposeful love. You got to stick with me. Verses three through five. 
Here's what God says. I turned him, meaning Esau and Edom's mountain, I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord of armies, says this. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the people of the Lord is cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, and this is the key phrase in verse 5, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. One of the things that God always wanted Israel to remember was that his love, covenant love, his redemptive love was purposeful. They were a missional people, Genesis 12, right? You are blessed, Abram, to be a blessing to all nations. They kept forgetting that. Remember that people are going to stand in awe of God because of what I've done, because of my choosing, because of my covenant love. Now, let me show you that choice all the way back to Genesis. It's quite remarkable. Genesis 25, 23 is this. And the Lord said to her, meaning Isaac's wife, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. You know what those nations are? Edom, Esau, Jacob, and Israel. Two people come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And notice this. You talk about choice. You talk about sovereignty. You talk about God having a purposeful plan. And the older will serve the younger. Do you see what's going on here? God is saying that I have such a deliberate purpose that I redeemed a people, Israel, who had no spiritual qualifications, started with Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. There was two children in the womb of Rebekah. I flipped the cultural norm around, and I chose the younger and not the older. This is radical, folks. This is God's sovereign will to do what? To bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to bring Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so God is awakening Israel's memory. He's helping them embrace please, embrace, please don't miss this, their identity as a missional people who God set their affection on. He loves for a purpose. That's the point here. So because of sovereignty, the destiny of two brothers and two nations, although appearing very similar, became radically different. What are the similarities? They both are descendants from Abraham, similar. They both came from the same seed, Isaac, in the same womb, Rebekah. But you know what? God's purposes for Israel and Edom were radically different. That's his choice, his prerogative, not mine, not yours, and we stand in awe of him. Now, let me encourage you. Some, somebody might look at verses 3 through 5 and say, again, harsh language. Why did God call Edom or Esau a wicked country? I'll tell you why. Because they were wicked. They were very sinful people. I can't go into all the details of Edom, but they were wicked. They hated God's people, Israel. Okay? So Esau drifted. A lot of uh, animosity between the two nations. Ultimately, Edom got annihilated. But why does God call Israel the holy land when it wasn't holy? And that comes from Zechariah 2.12. I'll tell you why, folks. Israel is called the Holy Land not because they were a holy people. Not at all. 
Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, they were being oppressed. Ten tribes were lost. Why? They were being disciplined. Seventy years of captivity in Babylon, they sinned greatly. They weren't a holy people. Guess what? Spiritually speaking, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between Israel and Edom. They were sinners, and they all deserved judgment. But you know what God did? He said, I'm going to set my affection on sinful Israel. I'm going to be a merciful God. I'm going to establish a covenant love relationship with them, and my love will never, ever fail. Regardless of how sinful they become, regardless how off track they live, my affection is for them. My mission will be accomplished. And friends, that's a beautiful, beautiful concept. You know what, Mr. Eikenberry, can you grab that uh, vase over on that table? I want to close with a story and Hopefully, this will tie it all together. Give me a few extra minutes, okay? Let's give it up for Mr. Eikenberry. Thanks, sir. What a half-hearted clap. Come on. All right, so some of you know I love clay, right? This is a replica of a Hittite um, piece of pottery. 3,200 years ago, what would happen is, in fact, clay in the ancient world was always purposeful, always purposeful. And so uh, today we use it for decoration. It's kind of cool and all that. Back then, it just was purposeful. Two things about this. This was a wine decanter. And so the servant, me, be the servant, come to the, the king, the royalty, and I would pour the wine. I do two things. One, I serve with wine. I bless with a resource, but I bow in their presence. Why do I share this with you? This is Israel. They were God's magnus opus. They were a masterpiece. They were chosen. They were a signature uh, work of art of God. It was his choice to make Israel what they were. Why? To take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So friends, when we struggle, whatever we go through in life, we have to ask the question, is it purposeful? Is God using the difficulties of 430 BC in the life of Israel to shape them, mold and make them into a magnus opus? So they take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The answer is yes. And I'll close with this story. Let me put up the Backstrom family. A few years ago, uh, Ellen and I met this dear family. This is mom and dad, Connie and Nathan, and they have five beautiful children. And so just imagine church happens. Nathan is a pilot. He leaves a few minutes early from worship, and he's flying for Northwestern out of Minneapolis. Connie and the kids are in worship. They go home. The afternoon's normal. Three of the older boys say, hey, mom, can we head over to Target, then to Walmart, be back in a couple hours, just going to putz around. Good to go, guys. Be home for dinner, seven-ish. Great. They do Target. One of the sons calls, mom, we're heading to uh, Walmart. Another half hour should be there by seven. What's for dinner? Salmon. Oh, yeah, I love salmon. And so fast forward, about an hour passed. And Connie's a little nervous, but not too nervous. Two hours pass. She talks to her husband. The three boys are not home. And her heart's starting to fail. She sees at about 9 o'clock, they're supposed to be home at 7.30, two vehicles coming down the long driveway with headlights on. She says, oh, those buggers. They stopped over their buddies. They're coming over. It's going to be a sleepover. It's going to be a hoopla. And she's getting ready for the gang. Vehicles got closer to the home, and she noticed there was two sheriffs. 
Sheriff's come to the front door, share a few things. Two of her three sons on that trip were killed in a car wreck by a drunk driver. Nathan was able to get to the hospital. Another sheriff in the community came, took Connie to the hospital. They met there to see the only survivor, Jacob. Jacob, 17. Life support, tubes coming out of his head, warm blanket over him. His eyes are dilated. He was not there. Mom and dad look at Jacob, and his heart starts to fail. And they took those, what do you call those things? Paddles. Try to revive him. Mom said, please stop. My son's not here. Let him go to be with his brothers. Connie and Nathan drive home. Everybody's there, family, friends, church, and they're praying. She just lost three of her sons, three of her five sons to a drunk driver. How would you respond? God gave the Backstrom family, Connie and Nathan Backstrom, such grace at that moment to do one thing. God, you're on the throne, and we are not. We know we're redeemed for covenant love. We love you, and we know we're redeemed for mission. Use us. We're yours. From that day on, in 2005, they have yielded themselves for 17 years to share their nightmare, losing three or five of their sons. When Ellen and I interviewed them, got to know them, it was very emotional. And uh, they were already eight years into it. She was still grieving, Connie, she was still weeping. We invited them to do our Easter service a few years ago in 2013. And they came and shared their story, their gospel story. One of the things Nathan did, which was so cool, he would regularly take the five boys out for a breakfast or lunch, and he would ask 21 questions. He had his list. Hey, what's your favorite movie right now? What's your favorite sports team? And the list went on and on. He would close with one question. How do you want to influence people through your life? And Jacob, the 17-year-old, said, Dad, I want to win 20 people to Jesus. What a remarkable thing for a 17-year-old to say. They have spoken over the past 17 years to thousands and thousands of people across the country and beyond. They came into our church one Sunday morning on Easter 2013, and a lot of people said yes to Jesus. Jacob's dream was realized. 20-plus people came to faith in Christ. We love this family. We got close to them, and they inspired us. Inspired us for this, guys. When you're disappointed with God, he's on the throne, we're not. Whatever you're going through, trial, pain, suffering, there's a purpose because you're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that purpose is that your life and mine would testify to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's the pain What's the sorrow? What's the hurt this morning? How are we disappointed with God? Can we take that and offer it to God a living sacrifice like the Baxham did and say, God, use me. I'm yours. 17 years, and the gospel is advanced through tragedy. This is Israel. It's a picture. Don't lose love, don't lose heart. Cling to the trials, cling to the pain, cling to the suffering, and let God's 
redemptive, glorious, faithful, covenant love purpose be lived in your life and mine. Amen? Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We stand in awe of you this morning, Lord. We stand in awe of you. Thank you, Jesus, for willfully going to Calvary, for shedding your blood, the sinless, unblemished lamb. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, through Jesus, for giving us faith to believe this truth and receive your Holy Spirit and live out this gospel story. So, Father, would you take every individual story today and redeem it? If we're disappointed, if we're struggling, if we're just, ah, God, take it. Mold us, make us into that masterpiece, that magnus opus, that beautiful piece of clay for your glory. And Father, as a church, this is collective Israel, this is the church. Let Westwind just be passionate like the church of Ephesus was at the end of that love love letter, to love you with an undying love, Lord. That is our prayer. And we ask it, Father, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.